Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This concert was one of the most exciting ones for me to present with the Albany Symphony this season. Uh, it's built around American composer John Harbison, who's serving this year as the orchestra's melon-funded mentor composer. The Andrew W. Mellon Foundation gave the orchestra a very generous gift to support some composer partnerships in which we bring composers at all levels of of their professional development to Albany and have them work in various guises with the orchestra. So each year, starting this year for the next three years, one of those positions is called mentor composer. And that's to be filled by a major internationally known uh, composer. This first year, John Harbison is our mentor composer. Next year, Academy Award-winning composer John Corley will be our mentor composer. And in the third year, we're still working toward that one. So you'll have to stay tuned for that. John Harbison, though, has very graciously agreed to be the first year's composer mentor. And in his role as our, our mentor composer, we're playing two major works by John on two different of our subscription concerts. On this concert, we're featuring the symphony number four. And then at the very end of the season, on our, our season finale at that glorious new performing arts center, MPAC, we'll be performing uh, the suite from John's fabulous opera, The Great Gatsby, which was premiered and then performed again at the Metropolitan Opera as well as at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. So that'll be the centerpiece of that concert, and actually we'll be recording the suite from The Great Gatsby after that concert. So very exciting couple of chances to see our old friend John Harbison, because John Harbison is, of course, no stranger to the Albany Symphony. The orchestra has performed his pieces frequently through the years and has actually recorded a great deal of his music, including his very uh, impressive Symphony Number no. 3 and his cello concerto. So we've had a great experience with him through the years, and it's always a pleasure to welcome him back. But as part of the residency, I asked John to sort of co-curate this concert, and we designed the concert to be something of a portrait of John, of his interests, of his passions, of composers who've influenced him and upon whom he's had an influence. So on the one hand, we uh, invited him to commission a young composer who he's been a mentor to. That's Timo Andres, who's written this intriguing double concerto for one player, which you'll hear more about later in the program. And also he selected works by two of his favorite composers, two composers who had a very important influence on his development, uh, Aaron Copland, uh, whom he knew when John was in fact a young man and Copland was the great figure in American music uh, and knew quite well, and also Franz Joseph Haydn, whom John, of course, never knew. Uh, They didn't quite overlap, like the dinosaurs and the humans, as my kids like to say. Uh, Not that Haydn is a dinosaur. In fact, Haydn is one of the freshest of all the great composers, and I think that's one of the things that has drawn John to his music so much through the years. So the program begins with Aaron Copland's very early work, Music for the Theater. This is one of my absolute favorite Copland works, and strangely, a Copland work that's seldom played, even though I think it's one of his most approachable, appealing works. Copland wrote this piece in 1925, when he was a mere 25-year-old composer. He'd come back from France, where he'd been studying with Nadia Boulanger, the great pedagogue there. And... um, 
was really casting about for a way to make his music sound uniquely, distinctly American. And I'm, I'm certain that he must have been greatly influenced by the example of George Gershwin, who a year earlier had just come out with his classic work, Rhapsody in Blue. And I'm sure Copland got a good taste of what incredible fame that brought to Gershwin. So Copland also dabbled a bit in, in jazz. He wasn't nearly as much as Gershwin from the, the world of popular music, but he was intrigued by it and decided to write a series of works in the mid-20s that owed their inspiration to jazz, starting with his piano concerto, which is kind of an interesting but a very angular piece, very different from uh, Rhapsody in Blue, and following that with this piece, 1925, Music for the Theater. Uh, music for the Theater, it's not for a specific Broadway production at all. It's a sort of an imagined set of set pieces that could go to a, a hot 1920s musical show, one that is virtual or that never actually existed. Uh, the work is in five movements. The first movement is called the prologue. Second is a dance. The third is an interlude. The fourth is burlesque. And the fifth is epilogue. And this was actually one of Copland's most popular pieces as a young man. It was really one of the pieces that established his reputation. All sorts of conductors you wouldn't expect uh, champion this piece, starting, of course, with the great Serge Kusevitsky, who was through, throughout the years Copland's greatest champion. But also conductors like Walter Damrosch, who conducted the New York City Symphony, featured the piece. In fact, I, I was very, uh, I was much entertained to read about Damrosch, who had uh, the New York City Symphony. And in the second year that the piece existed, Damrosch featured the piece on a series that, that he had with his orchestra in New York City, uh, which had a rather unfortunate title. The, the title was Modern Music, Pleasant and Unpleasant. Uh, and as Copeland said, I don't know which category I fell into, but Damrosch included my piece in 1926. So Copeland, very different from Gershwin, really was interested in jazz from a rhythmic perspective for the kinds of forms and such. And in fact, he said, uh, I quote here, I was intrigued with jazz rhythms, not for superficial effects, but for use in larger forms with unconventional harmonies. He also said that jazz may be the substance not only of the American composers Foxtrots and Charlestons, but of his lullabies and nocturnes. Interestingly, though, shortly after the mid-1920s, Copeland really took a turn away from jazz and began to look much more to American folk idioms that, that then became his sort of signature with his most populous pieces, Appalachian Spring, Billy the Kid, Rodeo, uh, and also to other types of folk music, like in El Salon Mexico, which was considered something of a breakthrough piece a few years after this in 1932. Nonetheless, as a young man... Uh, he certainly could jazz it up a bit, as is proven here in this charming piece for a small orchestra. It's called Music for the Theater by Aaron Copeland. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Aaron Copeland's sassy Music for the Theater from 1925, performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. I thought it was a perfect curtain raiser as a sort of way of introduction or of prelude to John Harbison's mighty Symphony Number no. 4. Now, John's piece is, is cast for a much bigger orchestra. It's a much bigger form, but like the Copeland, is also in five movements. Uh, this is a work from 2003-2004, commissioned by the Seattle Symphony. And the five movements are intriguing in that John did a lot of work on four of the movements. And then sort of in the middle of the gestation period of creating this piece, he got some very disturbing news about someone who was very close to him, a family member who uh, was diagnosed with a very serious uh, condition and uh, sat down and wrote a very 
heart-wrenching, beautiful, powerful, slow movement, which becomes the fourth movement, threnody, of this fourth symphony. So even though the outer movements are not particularly dark, in fact, I find them quite charming and sassy and brilliant, uh, the fourth movement, the sort of emotional core of the piece, is a very dark and, uh, and brooding but, but ultimately very beautiful movement. John unlike Copland, has really kept an interest in jazz throughout his career. Uh, He's a passionate listener to jazz and also a fine jazz pianist. And among the many influences, Copland being one and and John having known Copland and and worked with Copland and and gotten a lot of feedback as a young composer from Copland, Copland was an influence, but also the great figures of classic jazz figure large in John's influences upon him, upon his his musical self. And I think one hears that very distinctly in the, the outer movements of this piece, particularly in the finale and in the scherzo, and it's a very uh, big, exciting, jazzy piece. I must say I've grown to absolutely love this piece. What I love about it is the fact that it's very much, I think, about landscapes. After a first movement, which is uh, called Fanfare, and is a very brash, brief, fanfare-like piece for the whole orchestra, very big and rhythmically jagged, but very exciting, the piece really becomes, I think, an incredible landscape journey where you sort of wander through these magnificent, very big, wide musical landscapes, and all sorts of interesting paths are taken. John's talked a lot uh, about recently about how he no longer needs quite as much uh, to plan out the structure of his pieces. He kind of begins them and then sees where they take him. I think that's something that, that more mature composers are able to do once they've really mastered the forms, the basic forms. So the piece does travel a great distance, and it's, um, I think, a very intriguing piece, but very much influenced, I think, by jazz, which is why I wanted to preface it with the music for the theater. So the work is in five movements. The first movement, fanfare. The second movement, intermezzo, is kind of the most enigmatic of all the movements in that it travels to three very distinct worlds. The uh, third movement, scherzo, is a rather begins as a rather typical kind of modern scherzo, but then begins to to wander into very interesting different places. The fourth movement, Threnody, is that very dark, introspective, and and painful movement that John wrote sort of after the other pieces were mainly shaped. And the last movement, Finale, is a very intriguing movement in that there's a big pulse going on all the way through the last movement, which is very steady. But what John does is he manages to weave within this pulse, without ever changing the big pulse of the orchestra, to weave in different kinds of music. So it begins uh, rather angularly, and yet then there's this wonderful, very fluid, flexible dance, almost like a waltz. And then later on, there's a kind of little march. But it all keeps coming back to the same music. And what's so intriguing is that you have all these different kinds of music that seem to be in different tempi, and yet they're all really, in essence, in the same tempo. So here now, only the second set of performances ever of John Harbison's Symphony Number no. 4, featuring the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. As part of this Harbison portrait concert, uh, we invited John to select a young composer in whose music he really believes and in whom he's taken an interest uh, to commission from that composer a a new work as a sort of companion to John's Fourth Symphony and to the other works on the program. Now, for John, that's a very tricky thing to ask because John has had such an influence on so many young composers and has really been, in essence, the the Aaron Copland figure of our day. In Copland's time, Copland was really the, the most important, not only the most important composer, but the most important mentor and advocate for composers in general and for young composers in specific in America. And John has really assumed that role after Copeland's death. In fact, John has for the last 12 or so years been the president of the Aaron Copeland Foundation, which is a a wonderful organization that takes Copeland's 
estate and basically gives money very generously to institutions that perform and record living American music with a particular emphasis on young and emerging composers. So John has nurtured a great number of composers, both in his role as Copeland and even more so as the principal teacher most summers at Tanglewood, uh, where he has the composing class often, and also many summers that he spent part of the time out at Aspen as well, uh, and also uh, in his in his teaching at, at MIT and, and various clinics and things he does. So he's come into contact with a great number of the most gifted young composers. So I think it was actually quite a challenge for him to find a young composer and sort of anoint that one, the person to share his concert. In typical John fashion, he, he picked a composer with whom he hasn't had that much contact, someone he just knew one summer at Tanglewood and was impressed by, Timo Andres. And uh, we asked Timo to write a piece. Timo is short for Timothy, but he goes by Timo Andres to write a piece. And he suggested a little mini concerto, a concertino for a close friend of his, Owen Dalby, a quite brilliant violinist and violist. And he said, I'm not sure I may want to write a viola piece for him, um, but he's also a fabulous violinist. And I, I said, just sort of on the spur of the moment when Timo and I were discussing, it, I said, well, why don't you write a double concerto for one player? You know, if, if Owen's that good on violin and viola, I can't think of another piece in the repertoire that really features one player playing both instruments. But as you probably know, many violinists are fine violists and vice versa. So uh, after initially rejecting that idea, I think he began to think it was a pretty intriguing one. And so the piece is, in essence, that, about a 10-minute long piece that's kind of a, a mini concerto for the two instruments. Owen changes back and forth within the piece and has to change his bow as well, of course, because you need a slightly bigger bow for the, the viola. Um, he managed to borrow a viola that's a little smaller than his viola so that the changeover from violin to viola, the viola, of course, being somewhat bigger, the sort of alto voice of the string family, uh, wouldn't be so marked. But he does go back three or four times between the two instruments, which makes it quite intriguing. He begins with a, a very brilliant little violin riff that, that sets off the piece and then immediately shifts to viola where he does this kind of interesting, repetitive, minimalist thing. And in the middle of the piece, piece, again, features the, the violin very prominently, and at the end, the viola comes back. But he almost treats it not at all as a gimmicky thing, but really almost as if it's just an extended single instrument. You've got the violin on the high end and the viola kind of in the middle and the low end, and so it, it's very seamless in the way that the violin and the viola transition. So you may, as a casual listener, not even notice when he's gone over from violin to viola, but it's almost like he's created this super instrument combining the, the best elements of both. So now the world premiere of this new work commissioned by us uh, f- from Timothy Andres, Look Around You. It features Owen Dalby on violin and viola, and the orchestra is, of course, the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Timo Andres, uh, Look Around You, the world premiere of a new concertino for violin and viola, both played by the brilliant young violinist violist, Owen Dalby. Finally on our program, another composer who John feels extraordinarily close to is Franz Josef Haydn. Now, I should probably qualify that somewhat by saying that John's absolute favorite composer, I believe, is Johann Sebastian Bach. And John has had a long uh, association with this wonderful church in Boston, uh, Emmanuel Church, which every Sunday presents at least one cantata and some motets by Bach. Also does music by other, uh, sacred music by other composers, but is, is known nationally and I think internationally as a place where many or most of the choral church works by Bach have been played and are being played. And John has presided over an incredible number 
of performances of the cantatas as well as other works. As you know, there are many hundred cantatas, and John, I think, said that he's performed all but about 60 or 70, so he's really lived deeply with Bach, and he he loves to conduct Bach, and I think he, he gains great insight from his encounters with Bach. We'd done something a little similar to this about 15 years ago with John, and on that concert, he'd featured a, a short Bach work. On this concert, I think he really wanted to go with his, his second favorite composer, if one could even talk in terms of first and second favorite, but Franz Joseph Haydn is another composer who's had a, a very deep influence on John. I think, as John said to us, in every work of Haydn, as in the works of Bach, one learns things. It's not that it's particularly didactic or academic, but it's just that, that Haydn's fantasy is so unlimited that in every one of his 104-plus symphonies, uh, there are incredible insights and, and brilliant turns of phrase and, and innovative ways of, of reinventing rather um, explored forms. So certainly the connoisseur and the purist and the composer gains great insight from listening to Haydn. But of course, all of us, no matter what our level of of education in classical style, gain great joy and pleasure from Haydn because he is so inventive and so playful and so just all around dazzlingly uh, brilliant given the the very um, specific uh, ensembles with which he worked. I mean, his orchestra never really changed too much. A very small orchestra, small string section, uh, pairs of woodwinds, usually two horns, two trumpets, timpani, and that's the entire extent of the orchestra. And yet he he managed such fantasy through the various periods of his symphonic output. The work we uh, that John and I came to to uh, to choose to finish this concert is from the mid late career. Uh, it's from the 1780s in the 1780s, before he was invited to London in the 1790s to write that last set of 12 remarkable so-called London symphonies, he was invited by Paris to contribute six symphonies to this remarkable concert series they had in Paris that actually was at a Masonic Lodge. And the Parisian orchestra was very famous, uh, one, because it was a very big orchestra, 40 violins, 10 double basses, which at that time was enormous. In fact, Mozart had written a a symphony a few years earlier for it, the so-called Paris Symphony, and Mozart also was really excited by just the size and scope of the orchestra, Uh, but also because it was reputed to be one of the very best orchestras in Europe. So Haydn really let his fantasy go and wrote a very charming and big and, and rather dramatic and festive works. This one is numbered the first of the series. It's probably not the first of the Paris symphonies, somewhere in the middle, but it's symphony number 82 in C major, uh, The Bear, as it's subtitled. The subtitle The Bear came after Haydn's time, we're pretty sure, Uh, and I think it refers to the finale, to the last movement, which is a very rollicking kind of folk country dance, uh, which I think suggested to some early listeners the kind of dance that might be done by bears at a country fair, by actual bears. So it was titled The Bear. Bear Dance, subtitled The Bear Dance. But um, whatever the case, it's a very big, festive piece, C major, which to Haydn meant uh, lots of fanfares and trumpets and drums and such. The first movement, Vivace Assai, very fast. The second movement, movement Allegretto, moderately fast. The third movement, a, a minuetto, a minuet uh, in three. And the last movement, Vivace, rather fast. So it's a rather lively, very fast and very exciting piece. Uh, Haydn was such an interesting figure in that he wrote his different works very much with the public in mind, as well as with the realities of performing pressures. And by that I mean Haydn, and I think to a certain extent other composers of the period, even Mozart and Beethoven, but but no one as much as Haydn, was very pragmatic about how much rehearsal time he'd get and how difficult a piece he should write, both in terms of how the orchestra could play it and also how the audience would receive it. So he was very outspoken about the fact that his most complicated pieces tended to be his chamber pieces, which were written for connoisseurs and really for 
performer listeners. So he put his most extravagant ideas in those and his most complicated constructs in there. And he really felt that the uh, symphonies should be written in a so-called public style, meaning in sort of bigger blocks and much easier to put together. In fact, there's a famous Haydn letter that I always find very entertaining in which he says, my new symphony is particularly difficult. It will require at least one rehearsal. I always wonder what those performances sound like with one or not even one rehearsal. Anyway, I hope he had one rehearsal on this piece because we found it a joy but but not not unchallenging. But we had a great time working on it. And as John had suggested to us, it was really just a, a beautiful encounter with a, a new work by a great master. So here to close our John Harbison portrait concert is a work by one of his favorite composers, Franz Josef Haydn. It's his Symphony Number no. 82 in C Major, The Bear. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.